In the wake of recent online breaches, which have revealed security vulnerabilities to the commonly used password protection method known as hashing, what steps should businesses and organizations be taking to ensure the passwords that they store for employees and consumers are secure? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. And I'm joined today by a cybersecurity expert, Brent Williams, who's the president and CEO of Araxid. Brent, we've been talking about vulnerabilities to the commonly used password protection method known as hashing, and it's gotten a lot of attention in the last week after a breach at LinkedIn resulted in the possible exposure of more than 6.5 million passwords associated with the social networking site's accounts. What makes hashing so vulnerable? Well, Tracy, thanks for having me on board. Uh, first of all, hashing in and of itself is not a bad security practice. It's more the types of hashing algorithms and the hashing mechanisms that people use nowadays um, they've modernized significantly in the past few years, such that uh, standards like SHA-256 that actually make a far more complex hash, a 256-bit depth hash, that actually allow us to protect and secure those kinds of passwords much longer. So if you think about a, a hashing algorithm in and of itself, is it actually is a one-way algorithm. It takes one piece of input, converts it into a result, that you can't go backwards and figure it out. Well, early algorithms that did that um, didn't do such that computational analysis to such a depth that it can't be broken to, with today's simple computing platforms. So the LinkedIn hack, as well as many of the other hacks that have occurred with the, uh, the hashing algorithm, those hacks are actually occurring using old or rudimentary hashing algorithms. What we've done is made that far far more difficult for people to hash using new hashing functions. But in the end, hashing is not the only thing you want to do and put in place as a security function. So, Brent, let's talk a little bit about hashing itself. And there's been a lot of discussion around salted hashes versus unsalted hashes. What security benefit do salted hashes when compared with unsalted hashes, like the ones that we saw exposed in the LinkedIn breach? So... When we look at a salted hash versus an unsalted hash, an unsalted hash will take the password and actually place the password through the hashing algorithm and present the resultant uh, post-hash numerical representation of the password. The challenge is those passwords, if you used a password like Hello Brent as your password, each time somebody used Hello Brent, it would result in the same exact hash. So the unique piece about password hashing functions is each time they get used, they produce the same results. That's how come we can use them in, in encryption processes and digital signature processes because we know if you take the same thing in and you push it through, on the other side, what comes out of the hashing function is exactly the same each and every time, but you can't reverse it to figure out what the password is. So by virtue of pushing what's called a dictionary attack through a hashing function, I can actually figure out what the password is by testing a whole section of dictionary words against um, an algorithm and then produce all the hashed functions. When the hashed function matches, that means that the password was actually what the user used. Salting actually adds variability to that. So we add characters onto the end of your password such that when we hash it, it's different than just your password alone. So that stepped up the security a little bit. Now, the challenge that we have with salting today is salting with too few characters, 
say adding just a number sign at the end of somebody's password or adding a couple of characters at the end of their password and it's the same characters as for every password does not create enough variability across the data set that it can't be brute force attacked. Further, if you use a salting function that does not have a very strong depth to it, it'll be very easily attacked. So what we recommend is actually using a salting function that is random. In other words, it generates a new salt for each password, and the salt is at least as depth or as deep as the hashing function itself. So if it's 256-bit hashing function, your salt function should be 256 bits also. So it's essentially a cryptographically secure random number generator that generates that that code that goes along with your password that makes each and every hash completely different and unique. Now, LinkedIn, of course, was not the only site to get hit last week. Similar password breaches also affected online dating site eHarmony, online music site Last.fm, and now online gaming site League of Legends. Brent, do you think that all of these breaches are connected, and how far back in time might they go? Well, the reality is they probably go back much further in time, and uh, they will continue to go on in time. Um, it turns out that they're probably connected by the type of attack used. Uh, the type of attack typically used in order to get to a hashing function is actually a SQL injection type attack because we can actually inject into uh, the database code itself the SQL attack that will actually allow us to test out the series of passwords in uh, the actual uh, SQL injection itself. Now, what we've done is we've said, let's back out of this process itself and, and look at alternatives to um, the traditional password and username solutions that we've been using for so long. So national level policy documents like the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace have long recognized that username password alone is a fundamental vulnerability. And it's because unsafe coding practices and, and um, deceptive types of activities by um, those trying to get access to those databases have been able to either brute force or, or push their way through with new technologies and new processing speeds to be able to get through those hashing functions. So consequently, what can we do as an alternative? And we've really pushed the limit on creating or trusting different players who have usernames and passwords. And so what we recommend instead is actually moving to uh, platforms where we have shared identity providers. So some of the leaders in that space are organizations like Google, and um, Microsoft and eBay. And what they're doing is actually getting to the point where their, their single identity is only used once to use on their website. And then that, in turn, creates a federated token, which is fundamentally unique, that gets you into the target website that you're trying to get into. So now that works well and good at for people who are fundamentally conducting e-commerce and allowing you into a social networking site or a dating website. But there are lots of other technologies that are coming along that I'll be happy to share with you that replace even more sensitive websites like bank websites and healthcare websites and government websites. Yeah, so what would some of those technologies or solutions be? As we've been looking at uh, strong multi-factor solutions, the number of providers in the country who are capable of actually delivering um, multi-factor authentication and a federated solution where the real identity of the individual is much more important than just their ability to produce a username and password, the fundamental presence of these providers is actually fairly low. And so what Arapsit's actually done is created a trust network where 
the dependency on the real identity of the individual is significantly higher than, say, one's Google username and password, which may have absolutely nothing to do with who they actually are. And so consequently, these trust sites are actually looking at identity in a fundamentally different way. So you might be able to pass the authentication, but what other indicators do you have that you might actually not be the person that we claim you are, or what indicators are there that you definitely are the person that you claim to be and even might have the, the authentication credentials to, to be? And so this new level of trust assertion and trusted identities is actually the next generation of identities on the Internet. Now let's go back for a second and talk about hashed passwords because they are still the most commonly used. How are hashed passwords typically stored? In the older types of uh, data structures, they're most commonly stored as the actual hashed function itself. So a username or a hashed version of the username will be stored in a data structure alongside relationally with the hashed version of the password. Actual password's never stored. So what ends up happening is the user presents themselves at the website, enters their username and password, and they take the same hashing function that was used to create the stored username and password, and they run the username and password back through that same hashing function. If the new username and password post-hash are equal to the username and password pre-hash, then it means that the username and password presented the, on the repeat attempt getting in are actually equivalent to the ones that were used the first time. Now, when it comes to some of these databases that house or host these hashed password lists, do online entities typically manage those password lists themselves, or do they often outsource to a third party to manage their hash databases? Well, here's the reason that trust is so important in this. Um, you never are quite sure who's got control of those databases. So if you're building a website, what you typically might do as a, uh, a new website owner is you might actually code and build that data structure in and of yourself. Eventually, what you'll probably do is move that to a directory structure or a, uh, a validation structure that might be provided by another software provider, such as um, a software as a service provider that might have a, an electronic health record system that accesses a, a username and password repository that's built into the application. So in each case, you've got a variety of, of instantiations. Usually less mature applications either code it themselves or outsource it to a fully independent third party. Moderately mature applications will then move to a data structure that is managed by the application itself. And then fully mature ones will be able to take advantage of much more secure username password storage schema that are actually much more dependent upon the user interaction as well as the validation of the security of the provider of the system. So, for example, the SaaS provider or the software provider or the service provider will have been through an assessment that actually validates that they're using a proper um, hashing algorithm like SHA-256 or something along those lines. Yeah, that's a great point, and it's something that I wanted to ask about. When it comes to organizations working with third parties or perhaps vendors, what types of questions should organizations be asking to ensure that these third parties they're working with are taking precautions to protect online passwords? <laughs> that's a great question. Unfortunately, the questions haven't been well standardized and well formatted. 
depending upon the type of industry you're in, they have a series of standards that might be used in order to implement uh, the security. We tend to do a lot of assessments, like an ISO 27001 assessment or a FISMA assessment, where we're not actually validating that the um, organization is truly secure, but we're validating that they follow a series of processes that should make them secure if their coding was actually done properly. So we continue to go back to the failed coding practices. Further, many of the security vulnerabilities that are created, such as you know implementing a, a hashing function improperly, can be as simple as typing a few errors in code and not calling the right routine off of the application stack. In those particular cases, you're really counting on human error. And so we go back again to the trust concept. What's the trust and the reputation of the people conducting the development or the operations of the system? And have they ever been assessed by independent parties who actually know how to do the testing? So validating that the SHA-256 algorithm is actually implemented properly or that the salting algorithm is actually implemented properly. So there's a series of code providers, organizations like Barracode does a great job of, where they're actually validating that the coding practices are done properly. And then, Brent, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see organizations making when it comes to password and login protections? The most common mistakes that they have are seeking more out of the process than they can actually trust. LinkedIn is a great example of an organization that has continued to demand more and more out of their website and their business functionality, but at the same time not affording any higher level of security or assuredness that the individual actually conducting the transaction is the individual that they intend to be conducting the transaction. So if you take a look at the services available in the marketplace today, there is an overwhelming amount of authentication capability that's out there, whether you do username and password or you do username and token or you do username and one-time password to a cell phone. The challenge is we don't know who those tokens are actually issued to. So I'm able to set up a LinkedIn account without much validation and verification that I actually exist as a human being. And then... What happens if I'm compromised later on? The ability for me to actually monitor an organization and monitor a user to see if they are doing things that would indicate to me that they are not who they say they are is completely missing in the marketplace at this point. And then before we close, Brent, what tips would you offer to organizations listening to this podcast about stronger password protection? So the first thing I would offer to an organization is take advantage of what I call the level one identity providers that are on the marketplace today. The level one identity providers are the Googles or the Microsofts or the Ebays of the world that have built the federated identity management platforms wherein you can use their authentication login in order to get access to your site and not have to create a new identity in your system. So actually use people's systems that you can actually trust and don't force the creation of a new username and password in your system. So a guy like me would actually have to have 2,000 unique usernames and 2,000 unique passwords in order to create differentiation. Because what I end up doing is creating one username and one password, one, one that I use all the time or at most of my major sites. So instead, move to the point that you're actually using the open ID login availability from a lot of the open ID providers. So you're actually consolidating down to one login and one identity service provider. And that's great in the instance that it's a what we call a level one identity, one where 
I really don't care if you're Tracy that much because I just want to make sure the person who created the account is continuing to use the account. In the world where we're actually trying to create trust with identities, whether it's getting access to your healthcare information, your government benefits information, your money, or other private information, the world is significantly different. In those worlds, we've got to actually create trusted environments where we know that the the carbon-based life form that we intend to be doing business with on one end of the transaction is actually the carbon-based life form we intend to be doing business with. Further, we have to be able to attach them logically to their real records inside the system. So what we've got to start looking to as an organization or as organizations in the e-commerce marketplace is building those trusted connections between the real end users, not just usernames and passwords, but the real end users and their data sets that are used to conduct transactions within our enterprise. Brent, I want to thank you again for your time today. Well, thank you very much, Tracy. I really appreciate it. Again, we've just heard from Brent Williams of Araxid. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.